Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. I am your co-host, Austin. And before we get started today, I want to um, ask you guys a little favor. So I was running the numbers on this podcast recently, which I don't actually do very often. Austin was the one that prompted me to do it. And I came to the realization that out of all of our faithful listeners, only about 25% of them actually follow us on their preferred listening platform. So I just wanted to ask a quick favor. If you like this show, make sure you hit the follow button on our show page. And this ensures that you never miss an episode. And when there's a new episode, it'll be right there on your feed. So you don't have to go searching for us. And I don't know if it actually makes a difference in our show getting seen by more people. But when you do that, um, I just figure it would help some of y'all out. So um, also, if you do want to help us grow, you can help us by leaving a positive review. And the more reviews we get, the more we get suggested to new listeners. And that is pretty cool. That is very cool. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for today's episode? Let's get it. I'm I'm eager to hear your opinions on this, not just yours, but everybody's. Um, because I guess this is an unresolved case. So we'll just go ahead and dive right in. Griffin, Georgia is a quintessential small town in the South, about 40 miles South of Atlanta, Georgia. It is a part of the Atlanta Metro, but it has its own distinct identity surrounded by rural communities and offering a blend of suburban and small town living adjacent to the bustling city life of Atlanta. So some may not know this, but the hit show, The Walking Dead, some of that show was actually filmed in Griffin, while the majority was filmed in Sonoy, which is about 30 minutes west of Griffin. Interesting. Sonoy also hosted other film productions like Fried Green Tomatoes, Driving Miss Daisy, and the 2011 adaptation of Footloose. I love the movie Fried Green Tomatoes. I feel like it's kind of a more obscure movie. Have you ever seen it? I've heard of it. Is it really old? It's kind of old. I mean, it's older, I guess, but... Like um, 60s? I don't think it was the 60s. I think it was like 80s or 90s. Okay. You'll have to look it up. But um, but it's a really good movie. My It was one of my mom's favorites. Um, I've had a Tawanda moment. And if you've seen that, mo- that movie, then you know what I'm talking about. But it's a good movie. If you haven't seen it, you should. Griffin is where high school sweethearts Jessica and Matthew Boynton tied the knot in the fall of 2015. And together they shared two boys, eight-month-old Tyler and two-year-old Tallinn. And Jessica, who was 19 at the time, stayed home to take care of the boys. So Jessica was raised by her grandparents since she was a toddler. Growing up, her grandparents were pretty strict, and as she got older, they were even more strict when it came to her dating life. School always came first, and if she was interested in boys, she was only allowed to hang out with them if they came to her house and were supervised by her grandparents or if they were in a larger group setting. But as the tale as old as time goes, the strict, overprotective grandparents couldn't stop a determined teenage girl from getting alone time with her boyfriend. And they learned this the hard way when Jessica came home one day to tell her grandparents, I'm pregnant. Boom. With Matthew's baby. Oh, we saw that coming. So at the time their first child, Tallinn, was born, Jessica was 17 and Matthew, her boyfriend, was 19. Jessica was determined to finish high school, so she did, and they quickly moved into an apartment together to raise their son. They eventually got engaged, and while Jessica was out scoping wedding venues, her car broke down just outside of town. When a mechanic showed up to help her with her car, they kind of hit it off, and one thing led to another, and they ended up having a little tryst, and that's when she got pregnant with 
Tyler. Pregnant on a one-night stand or pregnant as, as time went on and she started having a side fling with this dude? I'm not 100% sure, so I can't say. The old mechanic showed up and and we cranked on his wrench. That's crazy. Oh, I cannot believe you just said My that. goodness. I've never heard that one. I just made it up. <laughs> All right. Anyway. The second baby, Tyler, is not Matthew's, okay? But he was aware of that, and they followed through with their wedding. No. <laughs> no, uh-uh. I don't know if y'all just heard that boom, but that was literally Austin That was my head, head on a wall. wall. <laughs> Are you for real right now? I am. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand how people can date somebody, be married to somebody that... Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to a family event... Oh my gosh, I didn't know you guys were pregnant. Well, we're not. She is. That's actually, that's Kenneth's baby. It's a mechanic she was banging from the side of the road, but we're good. Like, we're going to go ahead and proceed with the marriage. And I'm like, how do you, how, I don't give a shit who's listening, who judges, whatever I say. That's crazy. So I'm with you. If uh, that would be your out, right? Like, I have a friend that was going to maybe date a chick that he found out was pregnant. And then he was like, I can't do it. And I was like, thank God you can't do it. That's weird. I mean, I, I have seen that happen. Okay, but if you come into the relationship after she already is pregnant, that's different. You got a heart of gold, though, because you're still getting introduced to people going, you guys are pregnant? No, she's pregnant. That's weird. That's weird. And it if, that, if that's is. you and you did this and you're listening and you're like, man, Austin, you're an asshole. Listen, hats off to you. And I'm not judging. Truly. I mean, I'm judging like internally. Like to me, it's strange. But it doesn't matter. Do you? So, you, you know, typically when you kind of go off the rails, I will edit it out. But this I feel like is justified. It's going to be pretty like universally accepted. You're on the rails. You're on the right track. I I do see where you're coming from. And I think that, you know, they already had one child together. The second child was not his. He was aware of it. And I, I, I don't know. I guess I don't know for sure if he was aware of it before they got married or if he found out after they were already married, I guess. I guess I never really. Either way, it's a problem for me. For but sure. that's just for me. And if you're into that sort of thing, then great. You know, I'm. I'm not. Not. I'm not. Yeah. Regardless, they got married when baby Tyler was about two months old, and he was aware that Tyler wasn't his, but he still took him in as if he was. Good dude. I mean, crazy good. Well, dude. Well, just wait. Okay. Shit. Yeah, I'm just gonna stop talking. <laughs> Don't now. get ahead of yourself. Okay. So Matthew at the time had just turned 21 and he started his career in law enforcement, landing a job as a police officer within the Griffin Police Department. And this came as no surprise to those who knew him, especially considering his familial ties to the law enforcement community in Griffin. His grandfather, Wendell Beam, had recently ended his tenure as the sheriff of Spalding County. Under Wendell Beam's leadership, the sheriff's department was known for standing by its own, often referred to as a group of good old boys, reminiscent of behavior we witnessed in the Murdoch case. But Matthew loved being a police officer, and he took great pride in his work, despite the long hours, the risks involved, and the toll it took on his marriage. After just six months of marriage, one of the Boynton's neighbors said that she witnessed a gradual change between the couple. A once young, hopeful couple became, quote, broken, distraught, and damaged, according to this neighbor. Behind closed doors, things were even worse. Both Matthew and Jessica developed what seemed to be just a hatred and strong resentment towards each other. 
and the only thing they could agree on was that they wanted a divorce. But each of them methodically prepared themselves for what they knew would be a nasty divorce and custody battle in court. Matthew started telling his co-workers that his wife was physically abusive towards him, even alleging that their youngest son, Tyler, wasn't his. He was letting everybody know this. I guess it's not alleged. It's the truth. It's the truth. And mechanic dad's not around. Correct. What's she doing? I don't know. He's not involved. Probably out trying to find more stranded women. On the side of the road, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, So Jessica kept a red composition notebook that she called her dirty divorce diary. And this is where she meticulously tracked Matthew's whereabouts, the times that he would unexplainably disappear, and then the conversations that he was having with his own mistress. Mm. Yeah, apparently it was a girl named Courtney who worked as a dispatcher for the police department. She also wrote what was important to her in their impending divorce. She wrote, quote, custody, full question mark, child support, alimony, LGTV, split boys' toys and clothes. And her entry on the day before this incident that we're going to talk about, April 13th, she wrote, quote, gone all day, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m., turned phone off, worked that night, 12-hour shift, and claims he did not sleep, but then says he was in Beeville all day with someone he used to work with at Pike Co. Sheriff's Office work-related relationships. So I think she's trying to keep track of his interactions with this dispatcher. Mm -hmm. But she kept this notebook hidden in their bedroom closet. And then the bitter war came to a head the next day on the night of April 14th, 2016. That night around 9 p.m., Matthew calls a lieutenant and tells him that Jessica has been hitting him again. Well, it wasn't so much hitting as it was her poking him in the chest with her finger. Shortly after their argument, Jessica went to one of their neighbor's houses with the boys in tow, visibly upset about this altercation. And while she was at the neighbor's apartment, Matthew texted her to see if she was going to go with him to get um, formula for Tyler at the store. So she gets up to leave and her neighbor insists that she come back to her place afterwards because she just had this feeling that things were not going to end well for the couple. Things between them were obviously very heated. They needed to cool off apart from one another. So Matthew, Jessica, and the boys, they all went to Walmart together, and they're captured on surveillance strolling the baby aisles around 10.15. While they're there, it does appear that they get into another verbal argument, and Jessica walks out of the store holding baby Tyler. Matthew is then left in the cart, and Tallinn is um, standing up in front of the cart, and Jessica eventually walks back into the store and finds Matthew. Without any sound, it's unclear what the verbal argument was actually about, but at the end of the video, the couple ultimately leaves together in the same vehicle, Matthew's black Chevy Avalanche. They returned home shortly after 11 p.m., and a Griffin police officer met them there to make a report on the domestic violence claim that Matthew made earlier in the night about Jessica poking him in the chest. So according to this police report, it states, quote, Matthew stated he was in the shower using his cell phone. His wife, Jessica, walked into the bathroom and pulled the shower curtain back and took his cell phone. Matthew then got out of the shower and asked Jessica multiple times if he could have his cell phone back. Jessica stated that he could not have his cell phone back until he admitted that he is cheating on her. She then began to poke him in the chest with her finger, telling him to admit that he's cheating. 
Matthew also informed me about an incident that occurred at Walmart on Thursday, April 14th, so that night, at approximately 23.20 hours, which is 11.20 p.m. Matthew stated that he and Jessica were inside Walmart and they started discussing how the baby will get formula, the formula he needs when they split up. They then walked out to the car and Jessica said she wasn't getting in the vehicle and that she would find another ride home. So she walked back into Walmart. Matthew then contacted Lieutenant Keyes and asked what he should do. Matthew then left Walmart and went back to his residence without Jessica because he could not get her in the car. And then he ends the report with, I did not make contact with Jessica. But we saw on the surveillance that she was in the car with him when he left. So that is just simply not true. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, she. they walk out to the car together. They both have both kids. I just wondered if it was released. No, it, yeah, and it's very clear. You can see they leave together. Around midnight that night, Matthew said he left to go meet up with a co-worker at Waffle House for a late-night snack. Welcome to the Waffle House. Where were the kids? At home with Jessica. Oh, but, she's back home now? Yeah, they all they all went bo- home together. The officer met him there or met them there to get Matthew's report. And then after that, Matthew left for Waffle House, leaving Jessica and the boys at home. So his claim that she didn't leave with him and mm-hmm. then she ended up really getting her... Or, Wait, I guess he's probably with? claiming that she got another way home, but... It's a weird thing to lie he, about, but okay. Right. It is a weird thing to lie about. Okay. Especially because it's so easy to disprove, but whatever. Yeah. So around midnight that night, Matthew goes to Waffle House to get a late night snack, but he said that before he left, Jessica told him to call an ambulance. Unsure why, he asked her what was wrong and if she was having trouble breathing, but he claimed that when he came towards her, she ran into the closet of their bedroom and slammed the door in his face, refusing to open it, so he left. Then, just as he was pulling into the parking lot of the Waffle House, Matthew claims that he received a disturbing text from Jessica, what he calls the suicide text, and it says, quote, I can't do this anymore. Take care of Tallinn and Tyler. Please tell them I love them every day. I have been suffering for a while now, and no one has noticed. Here lately, I have not been able to recognize the person I see in the mirror. This is not the first time I have had suicide thoughts. I love you and the boys, end quote. So Matthew then calls a friend at dispatch as he makes his way back to the apartment. And so here is that 911 call. Well, EMS, mm-hmm. can you please dispatch a unit out to my uh, location to me reference uh, to my wife? Um, I left the location. I'm, I'm back and around on Carver Road now. I'll be back there in about two minutes. Uh, she's having suicidal thoughts. My kids are at home with her, so I'm trying to hurry up and get back there. I'm driving. She just said that she's been experiencing suicidal thoughts right now. She told me to take care of the boys, so I'm trying to hurry up and get back home just to make sure that nothing's going to happen to them. Any weapons inside the house? Um, just my service weapons. So Matthew eventually makes it back to the apartment, and as he's walking up the steps to his apartment, he could hear baby Tyler crying from his crib. He then ran to their closet where he kept his police-issued gun, but the door was locked. And then he said he heard two shots back-to-back and called dispatch again. Fishy. This time he says, I believe I just heard a shot fired coming from my residence. I just came up the stairs two rounds. Be advised, I smell gun smoke, and I can't get an answer to the door. The dispatcher tells him to stay outside, and he says 10-4, leaving his wife and two young children inside the apartment. 
Now that is a huge red flag to me. Just if there was a shooter inside my apartment, you could not keep me from getting to my kids. Shoot me. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to go down fighting to get to my kids. Police arrive and they kick in the door to the closet and there they find Jessica. She's laying on the floor with her head on a blood-soaked pillow. She has suffered what appears to be a gunshot wound to her head. As the officers are checking her vitals, they are stunned to find that she still has a pulse. So they scoop her up and they pull her out of the closet where they also find, laying beneath her, Matthew's 40 caliber Glock handgun. The entirety of the 911 response is captured on body cam footage, and it's heartbreaking and disturbing to watch, so I don't recommend searching for it unless you're prepared for that kind of thing. But Jessica's hair is soaked in blood. Her eyes are rolled back in her head. She does not look good. She doesn't look like a girl that's about to make it. In the background, you can hear baby Tyler crying, and a female officer walks by with him in her arms. Mm, the kids being involved, since you said that at the store, it's sad. Mm-hmm. Two-year-old Tallinn was still asleep in his bed. He n- never woke up through all the commotion, through the fighting, the gunshots, nothing. He was still asleep. The emergency responders are quickly preparing her for transport to the nearest hospital, and shockingly, with a gunshot wound to her head, she can be seen kind of weakly fighting with the EM- EMS team, batting away their arms as they're trying to help her. It's clear she's not coherent, and the prognosis does not look good. So as they're wheeling Jessica out to the ambulance, the body cameras capture Matthew pleading for his wife, saying, quote, this can't happen, man. I fucking loved her. She loved me. She told me she loved me before she did it. What are my kids going to do? Weird. He pleads with another officer, if I had just gotten home 10 minutes earlier, I could have jumped in front of the gun. I could have stopped her, end quote. So you would have jumped in front of the gun for your wife, but not for your kids. That's interesting. Griffin police called in the Spalding County Sheriff, Wendell Beam, who happens to be Matthew's grandfather, along with the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. They discovered two shell casings and two bullet holes in the closet wall. They also find one bullet, leaving them to wonder where the other bullet is and if it's still inside Jessica's skull, since there was no apparent exit wound. Inside the closet, they also discover Jessica's dirty divorce diary. However, a few of the pages have been ripped out. Sheila Matthews runs a news site called The Grip, and she has closely covered this case from the beginning. In an interview with True Crime Daily, she said, quote, It's believed that Jessica entered the closet, closed the door, locked it, turned with her back to the door facing the back wall of the closet, that she held the gun to her head and pulled the trigger. So that bullet ends up towards the top left of the closet, and the second bullet hole is more of a mystery. Sheila explains, quote, The second shot that was fired, it entered the back wall of the closet approximately a foot, no more than a foot, off the ground. It entered at an upward angle, or I'm sorry, an upward leftward trajectory angle. And according to my interview with Griffin Police Chief, that second shot had to have been fired while the gun was either on the floor or almost on the floor, very close to that wall, end quote. But I am so confused by this because if she had a gunshot wound with no apparent exit and there were two holes in the wall, there are two shell casings found and only one bullet found, how could one of those bullets still have been in her head if there are two holes in the wall? So as the kids say these days, the math ain't mathin', Mm -hmm. okay? 
So Jessica was airlifted to the nearest trauma center in Atlanta, but just moments after the helicopter lifted off the ground, Matthew's grandfather, Sheriff Wendell Beam, asked deputies to tell Jessica's family that she had unfortunately died from an an apparent suicide. But he would be dead wrong on both counts. At the Atlanta Medical Center, the medical director and trauma and critical care surgeon, Dr. Vernon Henderson, alerts Jessica's family that she was never shot. See, when police arrived on the scene at the apartment, they assumed that she had been shot because her hair was matted with blood. Blood had pooled onto the pillow where her head was laying, and they found the handgun lying beneath her, and then they found the bullet holes in the walls. So, I mean, it's a fair assumption. But at the hospital, the surgeon shaved her head looking for the bullet wound and never found one. Rather, he found injuries consistent with blunt force trauma. No way. In his official report, Dr. Henderson wrote in part, quote, The report we received from the paramedics was that she was a victim of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Although there were several observations about Jessica that did not fit with that description. First of all, the wound that she suffered was towards the vertex of her skull on the right side of her head. This would imply that she shot herself with a gun pointed downward near the top of her skull. This would be a very unusual direction in which to point a gun at oneself with the intention of committing suicide. You'd almost have to pull the trigger. You'd either have to have your wrist really tweaked hard or you'd have to pull the trigger with your thumb. Yeah, it it doesn't make any sense. And why would you go to all that trouble to shoot yourself? Why would you do it at such a weird angle? Yeah. The second most striking observation in his report was that it's reported that she was right-handed and shot herself with her right hand, but remarkably, neither of her hands had any evidence of any gunpowder stippling from gunpowder blowback. Literally, both of her hands were pristine and unmarked, end quote. And then at the end of his report, he notes, quote, I have been a practicing trauma surgeon for nearly 30 years. It has been my observation that self-inflicted gunshot wounds are very unusual among women. I do not offer this information as proof that it did not occur in this situation. However, taken in the context of our physical observations, I think it at least sheds some doubt whether this was a self-inflicted wound or not, end quote. So for three weeks, Jessica remained in a medically induced coma while she recovered from her brain injury. And then she woke up. It was an absolute miracle. She woke up and made a full, nearly perfect recovery. It's still unclear exactly what happened to her. Some believe that she was struck on the head with a blunt object, but an object was never found and two bullet holes were found in the closet walls. So... I'm just going to talk about my personal opinion with the limited information I have regarding her injuries, because there's no pictures of her injuries. There's no reports that are public about her injuries. So I'm just, I know there was an injury to her head and it caused swelling in her brain. There was obviously a traumatic brain injury, but how we got it is what we don't know. So it's my personal opinion that maybe she was grazed by a bullet because the shooter barely missed but I haven't seen that confirmed or disproved. And there was never an investigation further into the incident because they all assumed that it was an attempted suicide. Another potential theory is that he hit her with her, with his baton, incapacitating her and then shot the gun off in the closet to make it look like a suicide. That's what I'm leaning towards. Mm -hmm. And then he texted himself from her phone to establish his alibi that he was not there. 
Then he left towards Waffle House to again establish his alibi and claimed he heard the two gunshots when he arrived back at home, despite two different neighbors saying that they heard the first gunshot closer to 11 shortly after they got home from Walmart and not closer to 1 a.m. like he was claiming. So the neighbors are saying they heard two shots three hours apart. Two hours apart, 11 and 1. Oh, okay, sorry. Still, that's wild, though. So hold on. I'm going to ask what I think everybody has to be thinking right now. yeah. She made a full recovery. Has Mm -hmm. she not woken up and told the whole story? She doesn't remember. No way. Mm Mm-hmm. She has no recollection at all. Do you mm-hmm. think she really doesn't or do you think she's covered? Oh, God, no. I, I know she doesn't. I believe her 100%. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So you have these neighbors, two different neighbors, saying that they heard the gunshots two hours apart. And his report is that he heard them back to back, like pop, pop. And then the police who have been interviewed about this story have said, well, those neighbors didn't report it. The only one who reported it was Matthew. As if, like, we should just believe Matthew. Oh, we or as if we should report every gunshot we hear. Like, how many times do you hear a gunshot off in the distance and you're like, was that a firework or a gunshot? You right. want us calling on every single one of them? Right, exactly. And let's believe the person who has close ties to this case and not the unbiased neighbors that have nothing to do with the situation. Like, being, I'm, I wonder what the percentage of people found dead or in this situation in their own household, I wonder what the percentage of it is inside the house. It's got to be crazy. Yeah. I don't know. Because I mean, granted, yeah, somebody could break in and do something. No doubt. Obviously we've heard it a million times, but like the majority of them are in the household. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So his motive, uh, my opinion is that I think after their fight earlier that night, they returned home still arguing and she confronted him with the proof that she had regarding his affair with the dispatcher. And maybe he found her notebook and saw that she was planning to get full custody of the boys because she had that written down, custody and then full with a question mark. So she was potentially planning to get full custody of the boys. Now she had evidence against him that could potentially cost him his job because of this affair with a dispatcher. So maybe the only way out for him was to get rid of Jessica. Mm -hmm. So there are a few other discrepancies regarding Matthew's version of events that night. He claimed that he didn't change clothes when he handed over the red hoodie that he was seen in the body cam footage when EMS arrived. However, earlier in the night, he was captured on surveillance at Walmart wearing a gray hoodie. So at some point in the night, he did change. That was a lie. Also, at the same time he received this suicidal text from his wife and he's claiming he's on his way home, he's also texting his mistress. In fact, he was texting the mistress before he even bothered to call 911 about Jessica's alarming text. He also claimed that as he was walking up to the apartment, he heard two gunshots and then ran outside, afraid of a possible active shooter, leaving the two boys inside. But his records indicate that he was texting his mistress the whole time and the cell phone was found inside the apartment when police arrived. So was he inside or was he outside? Mm-hmm. And they didn't investigate this further? We'll get to that. So when she finally woke up, the GBI was eager to talk to her and ask her what happened, but she had no memory of that night after she entered the closet. How long did it take her to wake up? Three weeks. 
She was in a coma for three weeks. Okay, so I believe it too that she didn't remember it. Mm -hmm. She couldn't recall what happened, but she swore she did not try to kill herself. She was not suicidal. She was hopeful for the future. She had just landed a new job and was set to begin orientation the very next day. The last thing that she said that she remembered was going into the closet to get her shoes on because she was going to take their dog for a walk. And when EMS arrived, the dog still had the leash on. So that tells me she had plans. She didn't just up and change her mind and be like, actually, no, I think I'm going to just shoot myself. Mm -hmm. In the subsequent investigation, the cops did find Jessica's DNA on the gun, but it wasn't unusual for her DNA to be on the gun. First of all, she was found laying on it. Second of all, she had picked it up for him before in the past. And like there were times that he would leave it on the floor in his, you know, service belt and she would pick it up and put it away. And there were other times that he would ask her to bring him the gun so that he could clean it. But she maintained that she had always had trouble getting it out of its holster and that she had never shot a gun in her entire life. Then there are issues with that text message she allegedly sent Matthew saying that she was having suicide thoughts. Yeah. Did they ask her about it? Jessica points out that there are a few things wrong with this text that lead her to believe he sent it to himself from her phone. First of all, she did not have a lock on her phone, so anyone could have accessed it. Second of all, she says that she wouldn't have used the phrase, the phrase suicide thoughts and that if she had written it, she would have said suicidal thoughts. And then third of all, the message said, I love you and the boys, but she knows she would not have told him that she loved him because she hated him. No way she says this. Mm -hmm. She had recently found proof he was having an affair with this female dispatcher named Courtney and printed out all of their explicit Facebook messages. She had been preparing for a divorce, and that was exactly the ammunition she needed. She was done, and that was the last nail in the coffin of their marriage. And she had even told the neighbor that she was venting to earlier that night that she had found the messages and she was happy because this was the ammunition she needed to follow through with the divorce. Unreal. So ultimately, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation cleared Matthew Boynton of having any involvement in Jessica's case, despite all the evidence that she did not try to kill herself. Someone had to have attacked her, and the only plausible assailant would be him. But when your grandfather is the sheriff, I guess that comes with extra perks. So Crime Watch Daily reached out to Officer Boynton. That's right. He got to keep his job after all of this. And when their correspondent, Anna Garcia, actually ran into him in Griffin, Georgia, she confronted him and attempted to ask him for an interview, but he completely ignored her and drove off. And then just days later, Anna received this chilling email from an anonymous source that said, quote, are you an intelligent enough investigative journalist to know when you are being conned or do you have to be spoon fed? The devil is in the details. Show the world how smart you are and uncover the wannabe investigative reporters couldn't figure out. If not, get on a plane and go home. End quote. Oh well, who do you think sent that? You can't prove it because it was from an anonymous source, but like, come on, it's either Matthew or someone close to Matthew. Yeah, everything points at him. Of course. So go ahead and tell me that he's getting the investigations reopened. Well, in July of 2017, Matthew Boynton finally did face some charges, but it wasn't in regards to Jessica's attempted murder. Rather, it was for making a false statement and violating his oath as a police officer. So Jessica claimed that he still had some of her belongings after the incident and that he wasn't giving them back to her. 
He made a statement that he had in fact returned all of her items, but that was later proven not to be true. Now, this is all in regards to a gym bag that Jessica had packed the night of the shooting. She had packed this bag with a bunch of clothes, underwear, her dental retainer, and she intended to leave that night with the two boys. After the shooting, while she was in a coma fighting for her life, he took the gym bag and denied ever having it, refusing to ever give it back to her. Now, I believe he took this bag because it showed that she had plans. She was going to leave. This would not be indicative of someone suicidal. This is indicative of a woman making plans to leave her shitty husband. In 2017, it was actually his girlfriend that tipped off authorities after she sold it to a man named Will Sanders, who is heavily invested in this case. So Will Sanders daylights as a trucker, but he became invested in Jessica's case because in his downtime, he reviews police reports looking for indiscrepancies or maybe things that they have missed. So he came across this case and saw the clear corruption within the justice system or lack thereof in Griffin. So when he came forward with Jessica's gym bag and essentially got Matthew in trouble, the chief of police came after Will, accusing him of having a connection with some other string of burglaries, even though it was found to be baseless. This was all clearly an attempt to embarrass him and just get him to shut up, like stop meddling with this case, Mm -hmm. stop doing this stuff. However, Matthew did still face two felony charges because of this, but then a grand jury decided not to indict him on those charges, completely clearing him of both of the charges. So while he can't be an officer in Griffin anymore, he could apply to be an officer anywhere else in the state of Georgia. Jessica's case has since been closed by the GBI. For a while, Matthew had full custody of their two sons, which just killed Jessica inside. But the tides turned when one of the boys admitted that he was scared of his daddy and his daddy had been hurting him. Jessica reported this to Child Protective Services, and they arranged for the boys to meet with a psychologist. The doctor wrote, quote, I asked him if he has been happy or sad. He said sad. When asked how come, he stated, because daddy scares me. Daddy was up the hill and hurt me in his house, end quote. The sheriff's department in Pike County, where Matthew was living, investigated whether there had been abuse, but Matthew denied the allegations and the department did not find any concrete evidence to support the claims. Such bullshit. However, during the investigation, Jessica's sons were permitted to stay with her full time. In the spring of 2019, Child Protective Services closed the case and recommended based on reports submitted by the children's psychologist who had seen the boys for 25 sessions that they no longer spend time with Matthew. The boys expressed fear of having any potential contact with their biological father. This is what the psychologist said. Matthew is challenging the ruling in court, but this was finally a win for Jessica and arguably probably the most important one. She said, quote, I'd probably go to jail before I'd put the boys back in a situation where Matthew could even think about doing anything to them. As of today, Jessica continues to rebuild her life. She has found love again with a former classmate named Jacob. Together, they share a son, and she lives a relatively quiet life now, and I think she just wants to move forward from the whole thing. I can't help but wonder if she just realizes, like, she's... the, The impression that I get from Jessica in all of her interviews is that she's shy, and she's been through a lot, and... She's not interested in fighting or confrontation. Mm -hmm. She 
I think she knows in her heart what probably happened and she's open to saying that, even though she does say like she doesn't want to believe that Matthew would try to hurt her because he hadn't hurt her. He hadn't hurt her before. But like, like you said, she knows in her heart. Yeah. Like she knows when she sees that text and everything else, she's like, yeah, he obviously did something to me. Right. Yeah, but she also knows that she's up against a system that he is literally a family member in. Like he he has the upper hand. He was a police officer. He's related to the sheriff. I mean, it's a it's an unwinnable situation. So for right her. now he walks free also. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think they're going to open it back up, anything? I hope so. I really hope that somehow this case can get reopened and there can actually be justice. Right. Because the fact that he could still be a police officer and still have a gun in his possession or even the baton that he maybe allegedly, for educational purposes, may have used on Jessica, that that's frightening. Or the fact just that, that he's a kids, dirt bag running around and did something. Like, it's, it's kind of clear. Like, mm-hmm. it, at least from what I've heard right now, it's... It's pretty apparent. Right. And, so you know, crazy. I know we started off this episode talking about some of Jessica's indiscretions, and I get why that would maybe make you form an initial bad impression at but first. nobody, But nobody deserves anything like this. Exactly. That does not mean that she deserved what happened to her. Everybody makes mistakes, but... You know, the stuff that he did is unforgivable. What she mm-hmm. did is something you can move on from. You can split, you can still remain amicable, you can move on with your lives. But the fact that she was almost killed, that's a whole different ballgame. That's a different sport that we're mm-hmm. talking about. So I just wanted to make sure that I distinguished those two things because although it's somewhat important and it almost makes you believe that he's a good guy in the beginning because he took in this kid that wasn't biologically his. Seems like maybe his heart was in the right place at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people can be a bad person or have a bad outcome, but at some point in their life they had judgment. good intentions, you know. I mean, like that was a big move to take in a pregnant fiance. Mm-hmm. You know? Pregnant without with a and, kid that's not but, yours. But like you said, she never deserved any of that. That is just crazy. Right. All bets are off and you're no longer a good guy, in my opinion, when you start doing stuff like this. And it's like you clearly didn't learn either because even if it was just a, a heat of the moment thing where you attempted to kill her and then tried to, you know, wipe up your mess – you still held the gym bag afterwards knowing that it could get you in trouble. And he still tried to protect himself before he ever tried to help anyone else. Well, and it's, it's super sad that the kids will grow up and can find things about this on the internet mm-hmm. and have to allege what happened. I mean, it just sucks. But hopefully they, she lives a good, happy life and the kids do. I hope so too. Well written. That's a sad story, but well written. Thank you. I'm I'm glad that she survived. I think it's an absolute miracle that Not she survived. Not many of these episodes end in somebody surviving. No, no, they don't. And so I am and, grateful for that. And she's so beautiful. I found her on Facebook. I'm not going to like share what her name is now, um, but I did find her on Facebook. She's so pretty. She was always pretty beforehand. And she looks, you would never guess that she has suffered a traumatic brain injury. And some of her symptoms, she said, are very mild. She said sometimes she gets a headache and then sometimes she gets like numbness or tingling on on her left side, but that's it. Weird. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing. And not many of these situ- these stories either end in an unresolved case like this. Right, where it's just closed. I and mean, that's what baffles me is you have an incident here and you've been able to determine that she didn't try to kill herself. So then someone is out there culpable for what happened to her. So why is it closed? And back to the first part of this whole story, when did this happen? 2016. 
Interesting. So another thing I want to note too is that in the report that the GBI made when they closed her case, they declared her dead in that report and they still didn't go back and change it. So it's just kind of lazy. It's lazy, shoddy police work. It's mm-hmm. like you're not even trying to to do your job. This is your this is your one job and you're not you're just closing it cuz right. cuz why? Right. It's a big question. Anyways, that's all. I have an update. Oh, you have an update on, on a what? case. On what? Episode 137. Okay. You covered Corey and Eric Richens. Yeah. Do you remember this? Yeah, Austin. I told you I made a five-minute TikTok on this today. Oh, that's what you did the update yeah. on. <laughs> Dang it. I was going to update on here. I thought I was Go cool. For it. No, tell everybody. Okay, if they so haven't seen the TikTok, then that, you tell them. That episode was nuts. Yeah. So 137, it was the one where that Corey Richens, she she went to flip a house that was $20 million unfinished or 20,000 square foot unfinished house. Mm-hmm. And... She remember she killed Eric with fentanyl in his Moscow, uh, Moscow mule. mule, and then well, you already know the whole update. So it killed him with a Moscow mule with fentanyl in it, and then wrote a book about it and all that. And then today, tampering with evidence because and the judge denied her bail because they found a six-page letter written to her mom telling her like. I don't, you know more about it than I do. What I did, do. So I just made a TikTok on this today. I didn't know that's today. what your TikTok was about. You told me you had a TikTok, but I didn't know that's what it was. Yeah. So um, it came out that she had this six-page letter in her cell that was intended for her mom. And at the very top of the letter, it said, walk the dog in big all caps letters, mm-hmm. which I think is code for like, destroy this after you read it or something. But... In the letter, she's basically telling her mom that she wants her mom to have a conversation with her brother, Ronnie, and tell Ronnie to tell the attorneys that he had had conversations with Eric in the past about how he was getting his pain pills and fentanyl from Mexico and the cartel and all these things, and that how she was also trying to get Ronnie to um, essentially testify that Corey was innocent and that Eric would always try to hide pills in her bags when they would go on vacation and it would really upset her. Like she's just coming Creating up with all this these big alibi. Yeah, she's well, she's coming up with these scenarios to basically defame um, Eric's character. Mm-hmm. And so she says that she also encourages her to tell another friend to do the same. She's trying to like build this team of people who can just basically bash on Eric. Further down in the letter, she also suggests a way that her mom could get at Eric's sister by posting pictures of her daughters. So she's trying to like taunt Eric's sister from behind bars. And then at the end, she's like, also, can you sneak in some Crest white white strips for me? Because my teeth are getting really yellow from the coffee that I drink in jail. Oh my gosh. She's like, I wouldn't want my fellow inmates to see my teeth yellowing. (laughs) What a weird... Like right. all about image. It goes all the way back to her character in the beginning whenever in the story, whenever she uh, didn't she forge a document to buy or I don't know, didn't she? She wanted to buy this 20,000 square foot house and flip it mm-hmm. allegedly. And he said and it was did, a really bad idea. He said no. And she like closed on the house anyways, right? Or Yeah, she closed on it anyway. She had racked up a ton of debt in his name right. that he wasn't aware of until he was aware of it, which was right before he died. But the same day, I'm pretty sure it was either the same day before or after that he died that she closed on the house. And so she ended up throwing a celebration, I know, after he died. In the house. Like a little party to celebrate the closing of this big house after her husband Crazy. just died. Yeah. Well, I thought I was going to provide a wild update, but... 
Never mind. Yeah, I, the the funny part to me was the like, hey, can you slip in some crest white strips in an envelope? And I think I can hide them in my cell. My teeth are just getting so yellow from all the coffee and tea that I've been drinking. And multiple times in the letter, she's like, LOL, LOL. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird. At the top, it says, walk the dog huge with two exclamation points. Mm-hmm. And then says, but take vague notes so you remember. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It has to be like code for destroy. This girl's an idiot. She's an yeah. idiot. You don't do this kind of stuff behind jail, like behind bars. You have to know that they are watching you. They're listening to your phone calls. They're probably intercepting your letters and reading them. Like, girl... Be smart. I mean, obviously, I don't want somebody to like get away with something terrible, but like, how dumb can you be? In the letter, she's like, We're almost there, team. We've got this. We're almost to the finish line. I'm going to be free and then we're going to get those bitches. She literally says this in the letter. She's a moron. She's exactly where she is. And now she was denied bail and she's done for. Yeah, she's just, she's an idiot. She's got exactly what's coming for her. You know, I, I say like, I, I'm chastising her for being an idiot, but at the same time, I'm applauding it. Like, be an idiot. This is perfect because right. now you're definitely going to stay where you belong. Right. Man. That was a good update, though. Whew. Crazy. Yeah. All right. Love you. Good job. Love you, too. Oh, are you so excited for Orlando this weekend? Oh, yeah. CrimeCon, baby. You guys, we're going to CrimeCon this Podcast weekend. Podcast baby. In Orlando. So freaking excited. If you are in the area, come and see us. This episode is going to drop Friday. So if you're listening to this right now and you have no plans this weekend, come see us at CrimeCon in Orlando. Just Google it. I don't know where it's at. It's at like the Marriott, I think. Mama. Mystery. Okay. Out. Bye.